Hey, good morning, y'all. Um, hey, before I pray, I, I wanted to say a couple of things. Um, he, he hates when I do this, but um, I just wanted to acknowledge Coleman this morning. Um, we had scheduled Noah to be off, and then we get a phone call late last night that our vocalists are, are sick, can't be in, and, and Coleman just rolls with the punches. So we call him the Swiss Army Knife of our church. So, uh, Coleman, thanks for doing so much for us, man. Um, the second thing I want to say is this is a big week in the life of our community, uh, in the life of our church. A lot of new rhythms and a lot of new routines are being established with kids going back to school or homeschool curriculum beginning to kick back up. So if you're a teacher or an administrator or one of our kids that will be starting some kind of a new routine this week, would you just raise your hand? you got to do it high. Raise your hand high. Thank you. All right, so if somebody around you raised their hand, I just, I just want our church to kind of pray for these people. So I'm going to pray for this new school year, and if you'll just kind of put your arm around or hand on somebody around you, and let me pray for us, okay? Father, this morning we recognize that um, this week is, is a big change in the rhythms and the routines of many of our families, um, many in our community. Um, for many families in the room, it's an exciting time to get the kids out of the house and, and back into school. For many of our teachers and administrators, it's a bit more neutral, not knowing what this week really holds for them. Um, but Lord, more than anything, um, whether it's homeschool, whether it's private, whether it's public, we just pray for the life of these kids. Um, we thank you for a community that seeks to honor, love, support, educate, instruct. Um, but God, more than anything, we pray for these kids that they would know you that they would have clean hands and a pure heart, that they would understand their, the love of their Father demonstrated at the cross through Christ. And I pray that they would be able to take that light wherever they are, whatever routine's about to be established, um, and let it, grow, let it glow. Let it really be burned for you. Lord, I pray for our teachers, our administrators, our homeschool families, um, that you would give them the, the physical and mental energy required to be able to help this, this transition take place. Thank you for the calling that you've placed on many of their lives. I pray that they would steward it for the glory of who you are. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you guys can go ahead and have a seat for me this morning. Hey, if you have a Bible, uh, turn with me to Ezra chapter 9. So we're going to look at the last two chapters of the book of Ezra. That's Ezra chapters 9 and 10. And then next week at our one-year celebration, we'll be kind of closing out the book of Ezra. So Ezra chapter 9. Um, when we lived as cross-cultural missionaries in India, we, get, we got to see some pretty amazing things as a family. But one of the most impactful experiences I had personally uh, was getting to tour and travel the Himalayan Mountaineering Institute. So in, in northeast India, there's this institute that, that's devoted itself to all things mountaineering, teaching, instructing, educating this next generation of mountaineers. And, and history is, is pretty phenomenal. The first instructor at that institute in the 1960s was no other than Tenzing Norgay. Has anybody ever heard that name before? Tenzing Norgay. He's the famous Sherpa who led the first ever summit to Mount Everest with Sir Edmund Hillary in 1954. So Tenzing Norgay was a big deal instructor at this institute. But ever since I toured that, I mean, you got to kind of see the evolution of mountaineering. You got to see some of the, the gear that they used in the 50s, 60s, 70s. You got to kind of see how that's kind of taken place. But ever since I got to tour that institute, I've been kind of obsessed and, and addicted about learning all things mountaineering, like especially as it regards Everest. Now, I need full disclosure, I've learned about it from the comforts of my recliner. And um, there are statistics that I'm going to share with you that, that has informed that decision for me personally. But anything concerning Everest has been, has been kind of a nerd, nerd out for me. Uh, but let me give you some statistics about Everest. You know, it's going to take you on average 8 to 12 weeks to summit that mountain. 
just based on the climate that you get. As a Westerner, it's going to cost you approximately 50,000 U.S. dollars to accomplish it. Hence the recliner, okay? <laughs> Wasn't physical. It was the, the financial. So 50,000 U.S. dollars, 8 to 12 weeks to summit, all to have a 50% chance of success. You get a 1 in 2 chance and to have a 5% chance of, of death. Pretty amazing about Mount Everest. But, but what I've learned as I've studied Mount Everest is that the most dangerous portion of that mountain, you actually engage that portion day one. So as soon as you, as soon as you come out of your tent at base camp and you begin your summit, you begin your ascent to Mount Everest, the most dangerous portion of that mountain is on day one. It's called the Kumbu Icefall. Anybody? Am I the only one? All right, let me give you a picture there. That's the Kumbu Icefall. It's a glacier with, with massive rocks, like rocks of ice the size of houses. And as you kind of move your way around these, these ice rocks, you find these trenches, these crevices in the mountain that one slip, y'all, like one stumble, you're, you're hundreds of feet deep, your walk is over. Not just Everest, right, but on earth, like your walk is over. This is one of those trenches. Have you seen the pictures like this? Fascinating. So it's so dangerous that mountaineers on Everest will actually spend the first two weeks of their journey in base camp doing two things, acclimating to the altitude, and learning from the Sherpas the best, the best kind of strategy to help traverse trenches like this. Because it's so dangerous. They want to really take their time and make sure they understand the technicalities of traversing trenches like this. All right, so what does that have anything to do, you know, with Ezra? Well, I'm glad you asked. So far in our text, y'all, the, the remnant of the people of Israel have been on quite a journey. Like, if you've been journeying with us through Ezra, you, you know that the wave one of this return. So, before the return, the people of Israel were conquered by Babylon. They were exiled to Babylon. And then, God's favor stirs up this pagan king of Persia to allow the people of Israel to actually return to Jerusalem. So, they have to travel 500 miles just to get back to a home city, a home state that is totally decimated and destroyed. And they were successful. Zerubbabel, which is an amazing name and fun to say, Zerubbabel leads wave one, which is Ezra chapters one through chapter six. And they rebuild the temple. They dedicate the temple. They rebuild their worship. And they're so success successful that they get to kind of disperse and go back to their private lands. They get to go back to where their families are from and rebuild their own private homes and own private lands and, and all that stuff, all their private lives. Successful. You would think, and they had a little bit of opposition, but really reading Ezra 1 through 6, you would, you would see that their journey kind of felt like this. So let me give you a picture here. Anybody seen that picture before? Sometimes we think that that's what our journey with God ought to be, right? How many of you have recently put your faith in the Lord, maybe recently recommitted or rededicated, whatever you want to call it, maybe your zeal for the Lord is new, it's, it's passionate, and what your expectation is, whether you're aware of it or not, is that now that you've got God in your life, everything's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be smooth sailing. We're going to be up and to the right. We're going to get to the summit without any issue. Whether you're aware of it or not, we always seem to carry some kind of expectation like that. But if you've been walking with the Lord, right, for any amount of time, what you're aware of is that your walk with God tends to look more like this second picture. Right? Pretty good illustration. Just ups and downs, trenches and crevices. And there's some, there's some mountain peaks in there. There's some good moments, but there's also some hard moments. And if you've walked with the Lord for any amount of time, you know this is a reality. That it is not all smooth sailing. That our walk, our journey with God through faith, y'all, it's going to have some trenches. And the reason I want to bring that up for you this morning is because today, 
In Ezra chapter 9 and 10, the people of Israel have found themselves in a trench. They've slipped. They've stumbled. They've fallen backwards. They're, they're, they're stuck in this trench. And what Ezra, in a very demonstrative fashion, is going to show us is how do we get out of that trench? When you inevitably slip and stumble and fall in your walk with God, inevitably, how do we get out of that trench? That's what our text is going to show us today. So let's read Ezra chapter 9, verses 1 through 4. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. They've taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men have been foremost. Ezra says, as soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak, and I pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, have gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. All right, let's pause for a second. The people of Israel have fallen into a trench. And y'all, understanding context is so important. Wave one of this journey was successful. Ezra chapters one through six, they did accomplish what they had sought out to do. But Coleman mentioned this last week, that the time period between Ezra chapter six and Ezra chapter seven is 57 years. So they were successful for a portion of their journey, but they got content. They, they kind of got lazy. They began to focus on themselves. For 57 years, they, they got married. They had kids. They had kind of forgotten what God was calling them to do in the rebuilding of that city and the rebuilding of that people. And the timeline of these events, y'all, is so important. What we know from Ezra chapter 7 is that Ezra and this second wave of exiles have returned to Jerusalem in the seventh month. We read that in Ezra 7 verse 9. Fifth month, excuse me, fifth month. In the Hebrew calendar, the fifth month is August. All right, this is important. Hang in there with me. August. Return to Jerusalem in August. The events of today, the awareness that the people of Israel have slipped, they've stumbled, they've fallen into this trench, that takes place in the ninth month, which is December. We see that in Ezra chapter 10. So August, they arrive in Jerusalem. In December, they're aware of their faithlessness and their sin. But y'all, something happened between August and December that led to this moment. You want to know what that is? You got to look at Nehemiah chapter 8. Don't you love that? Nehemiah chapter 8. Because again, I said this when we, we decided to preach through Ezra and Nehemiah. This is one book. It tells one story. It chronicles the journey of God's people being rebuilt in Israel. So in Nehemiah chapter 8, this is what we read. And all the people gathered as one man into the square of the temple before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. All right, y'all listening? That would have been October. They arrive in Jerusalem in August. Their sin is revealed in December. What led to the revelation of that sin? The public reading and preaching and teaching of the Word of God. And that's really important for us because that's, that's, that's really point one. You want to know how do you traverse the trench? How, how do you get out of the trenches when you, when you slip up and you stumble in your faith with God? You allow the Word of God to expose your sin. Nehemiah 8 verse 8 says that Ezra and his team read from the book 
And this book would have been Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It says they read clearly and they gave the sense, which what that means is they went paragraph by paragraph, not just reading, but they would read and they'd pause a little bit and they'd preach a little bit, and then they'd read a little bit and they'd pause a little bit and then they'd preach a little bit. Does that sound familiar? It was expository preaching. They just went through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy slowly so that everybody could understand what God required of them. And as they're listening and as they're hearing, they're going, uh-oh, we're out of alignment here. Like something's missing here. They realize that they're in sin. Church, this is what the Word of God does. We know from 2 Timothy, or 1 Timothy that all Scripture is profitable for rebuke and for correction. Y'all, it will rebuke you. It will show you where you're out of alignment in your walk with God. We read it in Hebrews 4 that the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. That it, it actually allows you to discern the, the law, thoughts and intentions of your heart. And when you get that inside of you, you stand exposed before God, naked in His sight. That's what Hebrews 4 says. That's what the Word of God does. How many of you are ready to read? It's good for us. When we hear the Word of God, when we read the Word of God, it exposes where we're out of alignment in our walk with our God. Paul says this is one of the primary purposes of Scripture. Why do we have this Bible? Well, first and foremost is to know God and to know who we are in light of God and to know God, how we can know God, but it also shows us our sin. In Romans chapter 7, Paul says, what shall we say? That the law is sin? He says, by no means. Yeah, if it had not been for the Scriptures, if it had not been for the law, I wouldn't even know what sin is. That's what Paul says. Because how am I going to know what it is to covet if the law had not said, hey, you probably shouldn't covet? It's the Word of God that actually exposes what He requires of us, and when we're out of alignment with it, y'all, it exposes our trenches. And that's what sin is. Sin's a trench. It's these deep, deep crevices that we slip into and fall into that totally hinder our summit with God, totally hinder our journey with God. And I'll talk a little bit more about trenches here in a second. Let me give you a couple of additional points in these first four verses. Who had sinned here? All of them. It says the people of Israel. Great, everybody. But look at the second category of people. It says, and the priests and the Levites. I mean, there's such a principle here for us. The priests and the Levites, y'all, were supposed to be the spiritual leaders. They were supposed to be those appointed and set apart by God to reflect the holiness and the righteousness and to teach others of the holiness and the righteousness of their God. There is such a principle here, spiritual leaders. As the leadership of a spiritual community goes, so goes the church. As soon as a, a, a pastor or elder or deacon's faith, personal passion for Jesus Christ and His righteousness begins to fade, that little bit of leaven will inevitably leaven the whole lump. It's what happens. Spiritual apathy, apathy will be able to come across the entire community of faith. So these Levites and these, these priests had really failed the people, and the people had followed suit. Secondly, though, let's talk about their trench. Like, what's the big deal? Like, what is the sin? What is the trench that they've actually slipped into, that they've actually fallen into? Well, let's go back to verse 1. It says, The people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. So we have all these peoples of the lands, the, all the ites. And in verse 2 it says, They've taken some of the daughters of, of these ites to be wives for themselves and for their sons so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. Now, in short, the trench is that they had intermarried. Now, let me go deeper into that. 
from the beginning, we talked about this when we opened up Ezra and Nehemiah. From the beginning, God had chosen Abraham and his descendants to be a distinct covenantal people, right? And one of the conditions of the covenant that God had established with Abraham is that I will be your God and you will be my people, which means that this ethnic group, this this race of people, the Jews, the people of Israel, were commanded by God to be distinct and to be separate from the world around them, to be different. Why? Because of the way they look, because of the way they act. No, because their God is different, because their God is distinct. In fact, we saw this summer that their God is holy, but He's not just holy. He is holy, holy, holy. So the people who call that God, their God, need to be holy too. There's a holy race. And I have to be clear here, y'all, that this, this sin is not racial. The issue isn't some intermarriage among races because the Old Testament doesn't forbid interracial or international marriage. Look at the book of Ruth if you want to argue with me. King David himself and Jesus Christ himself are descendants of a Moabite woman. The issue isn't with the race of their wives. The issue is that these wives weren't worshiping Yahweh. They were bringing their gods, their polytheistic, idolatrous abominations of gods into their marriages. And you know what happens when that happens? When you're unequally yoked, which is what the New Testament says, the person that you surround yourself with, that you choose to move forward with in worship, will either serve to fuel your passion for Jesus or begin to dumb it. It's, it's just what happens. My mom used to tell me all the time that birds of a feather flock together. Y'all heard that? I thought it was in the Bible. Like, I thought it was a proverb. She said it so much with such authority. I was like, she gets it. You know, it's in, it's in there somewhere. Learn later, it's not. But the principle is, okay, Paul says it in Corinthians, that those who we surround ourselves with will corrupt your character. So who we end up being married to is so important, and that's what's going on here. All throughout the Old Testament, it was abundantly clear that they need to be careful with who they marry to ensure that their God is the God of the Bible. So Ezra arrives in August, a man, as we saw last week, who had set his heart to study the law and to do it and to teach it, doesn't waste much time. He calls all the people into Israel in the month of October, and he opens up the Scriptures and begins to teach and preach. And at some point, In that sermon, he comes across Deuteronomy 7, verse 3. You shall not intermarry with the nations around you, for they will turn your sons from following me to serve other gods. The Word of God exposed that trench. And again, church, this issue is not with the race of their spouse. The issue is with the gods of their spouse. So here in Ezra 9, After 57 years of peace and prosperity and getting married and building their family, the Word of God has exposed they've actually been faithless throughout that entire journey. They haven't been living in alignment with their God. And and, and look, look at that word faithlessness for a second. That was really the summary of their sin, that they had been faithless. And, And what that means is they've violated the covenant. They've broken trust with God. They said they would do certain things to follow their God, and they've broken that covenant. They were not trustworthy. They were faithless. And Ezra in verse 4, sits appalled. That word means stunned. He is stunned. You know why he is stunned? How could a people be so blind, so apathetic, so numb to the commands and the conditions of their God? How could a people who had just been exiled 57 years prior because of their faithlessness immediately run right back to faithlessness? He's stunned. How could this happen? There is a proverb that's actually in the Bible. 
It says, like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. I think that's what's going on here. It's just foolishness. But church, let's, let's bring this a little closer home uh, to home this morning. How many of us, like be honest, I don't need you to raise your hand, live entrenched like this? Like you're aware of your, of your faithlessness. You would call yourself a Christian. You would say, I'm a part of the covenantal people of God. I'm, 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 I know I'm called to be distinct. I know I'm called to be different. But if you were to honestly evaluate your life, you would know, that's not me. You're faithless. And church, just like the people of Israel were called to be distinct, that's what the church is called to. To be in the world, but not of the world. To love those in the world, but not to love the things of the world. To be, not to be conformed, right, to the patterns of this world, to be transformed. We're, we are called to be distinct. That's what Christian means. Christian means little Christs. So if you honor that name, that means you're living in such a way that you're reflecting Jesus. But if you were to honestly assess, how many of you would say, no, I'm not up and to the right? My journey with God isn't going well. I'm actually in a trench. I'm in a trench of sin. I've been faithless to what God's called me to. The things that you listen to, the enjoyments that you have, the entertainments that you do, the way that you talk, the way that you walk, the way that you live, the way that you work, the way that you parent, is any of that different or distinct from the world around you? Y'all, these are things that we need to honestly assess, and we need to let the Word of God expose for us. So let me close this point by saying this, though, very clearly. Please listen to me. The last thing I would want any of you to do today is leave and go, you know, he's right. I got to work harder. I got to do more. I got to do better. I got to rip myself out of this trench. There is not enough behavioral modification available for you to get your way out of this trench. It's too deep. You need a rescuer. You cannot rescue yourself. So hear me. Let the Word of God expose your plight that you may be in a trench, but do not try to work your way out. Let me tell you how, okay? Let's go to verse 5. And at the evening sacrifice, Ezra rose from his fasting, says, with my garment and my cloak torn, and I fell upon my knees. I spread out my hands to the Lord my God. Picture that for just a second. This man has torn his cloak. He has ripped out his beard. You might tried that. Come on, man. One nose hair, immediate tears. You grab a beard? Like he is, he is in agony over the sin that he's experiencing. And he hits his knees and he spreads out his hands to the Lord. Listen to this prayer. He's, he's just sharing his soul. He says, oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens from the days of our fathers. He's, he's beginning to look back at the past of his people. He says, from the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. For our iniquities, we our kings, our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the land, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant, to give us a secure hold within His holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery, for we are slaves. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us His steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O oh our God, what shall we say after this? We have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, the land you are entering, to take possession of it, is a land of impurity. 
with the impurity of the peoples of their lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved, and you have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these idolatries, these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so there should be no remnant nor any escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. For we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt. None can stand before you because of this. Man, do you hear the brokenness of Ezra here? So here's point number two that Ezra's trying to show. You find yourself in a trench. You've been entrenched in your sin. You let the Word of God expose it. Second thing you need to do is throw yourself upon the mercy of God. That's what Ezra does. The Word of God has exposed this, this, this country's faithlessness. And you would think that after Ezra spends a little time ripping beards and, you know, and pulling out his hair and, and kind of grieving over it, that he would rise from his knees ready for action. Right, ready, ready to call out this sin, ready to create some changes within that community, but, but he doesn't do any of that. In fact, the actions that Ezra takes can easily be perceived as inaction. Right? Instead of running to his people and dealing with their faithlessness, what does he do? Throws himself on his knees to deal with his God. Instead of running to a whiteboard and begin and create out, map out all of Israel and think about where all these cities are that we need to begin calling people out, he didn't do any of that. He just hits his knees in the prayer room of obscurity and he deals with God. He throws himself upon the mercy of God. I love Ezra's reaction to this. But look at the beginning of his prayer. Verse 6. He says, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. Y'all catch that? Ezra's not guilty. Is that our kids? All right. <laughs> Welcome to church planting. Y'all, Ezra says our iniquities, but, but Ezra wasn't guilty. Ezra had never sinned. Ezra had set his heart to study the law and to do the law and to teach the law. Ezra had not intermarried, but what does he do? He hits his knees before God, and he begins to identify with the sins of the spiritual community that he was called to lead, that he was called to invest into. Gosh, spiritual leaders, there's another principle in here for us. Elders, deacons, CBC kids, volunteers, grow group leaders, whatever it is, people in vocational ministry, people sensing maybe a calling into vocational ministry. Listen to this. A spiritual leader isn't someone who can lead a religious organization. A spiritual leader is someone who grieves over the sin of his community and hits his knees and deals with God and identifies with the sins of those people because he understands your sin separates you from God. It separates you. Now, you may be saved eternally because you've put your faith in Christ. That's forever. But what you recognize in your faith is that you don't have joy, you don't have peace, you don't have vibrancy, there's no life, there's no real relationship with God. You know why? You're in a trench. And sin separates in a spiritual leader. That ought to grieve us. And it grieved Ezra. He hits his knees and he begins to identify with his people. But look at verse 7. The first thing he does in his grief is he acknowledges their sin. He says, from the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt and to utter shame as it is today. When Ezra begins to look at the past of his people, he begins to recognize that the plight that they have found themselves in, 
the desolation of their city, the desolation of their temple, the deportation into Babylon, 70 years living as slaves and as exiles. They, he recognizes all of that is because of our guilt. All of that is because of our faithlessness. Everything that has happened to the people is because of our sin. And here's a truth in this prayer. What Ezra knows in this prayer is that God owes us nothing. That everything that we have gotten ourselves into is because of our action, and God owes us nothing. He owes us no mercy. He owes us no love. He owes us no grace. There's nothing that we have done to earn His favor. We are guilty before Him is what Ezra acknowledges. But then, when he stops thinking about the past, he, he begins to look at their, their present. Look at verse 8. He says, yet, although God owes us nothing, and, and although, although we deserve this, this captivity and with this slavery, now, for a brief moment, God has shown us favor. He's allowed us to secure a hold in this holy place. He's sent a remnant with us. He's, he's brightened our eyes, and He's granted us a little bit of reviving. Church, this is so important. We, when we look at our past, we realize we, we deserve nothing. He owes us nothing. But then when you begin to look at your present, you realize He's given you a lot, hasn't He? He has dealt with you as, if, as you don't deserve. And Ezra sees that. Ezra sees God's mercy. He sees His steadfast love. He says, we don't deserve this, but yet He has been favorable towards us. That is God's mercy. To the point in verse 13, He says, and after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved. Ezra hits his knees in grief, acknowledges their guilt, but he focuses on the mercy of God. He is so aware of God's mercy and favor. But there's another truth I want us to see in this prayer. He knows that God doesn't owe us anything, but yet He's been merciful. But He also knows that God is just. Look at verse 15. He says, O Lord, the God of Israel, You are just. Church, He is just. That's who He is. You know what that means? That means for Him to overlook sin would in fact be sin. That's not justice. Justice is doing the right thing. Justice is being fair, which means sin must be called sin and punished as sin. Righteousness must be called right and rewarded as righteousness. That's what a just God does. And Psalm 97 says that justice is the foundation of His throne. He is just. He will always punish sin, and He will always reward righteousness. So Ezra's hitting his knees in between these two tensions, going, we don't deserve anything but death. But yeah, he, he's been somewhat merciful, but we also know he's just. What is there to do for us? What, we can, he, what can we do? We just got to throw ourselves before his mercy. Maybe his mercy will triumph over his judgment because we know that he's just. Does that make sense? Do you see that in this prayer? He understands these facts. We don't deserve this. God is merciful, but he's also just. I fear what's coming. That's what Ezra's saying. So let's drive this home a little bit. So say the word of God has exposed some sin in you. And you know that you've been entrenched, and you're thinking, what do I do? The only thing you can do is throw yourself upon the mercy of God. You know why? Because He owes you nothing. He doesn't owe you anything. You, you don't deserve His righteousness. You don't deserve His favor. You don't deserve His grace. You don't deserve His love. You don't deserve His forgiveness. You don't deserve His mercy. There's nothing in your life that you can come before Him and go, yeah, look at this. I'm here. I deserve these things. No, no, no. You have sinned. You have fallen so short that the kumbu ice fall is so deep, you can't even stand before him. Are you following that? He owes you nothing. 
But if you could just, for a second, look at the way He treats you. That you have breath in your lungs, that you have a place to live, that you have love in your life, that there are some good things. You can see His favor. You can see His mercy. See, He owes you none of it, and yet He still provides some of it. But church, let me tell you, He is just. So many times I think it's easy for us to try to divorce the God of the Old Testament with the God of the New Testament. You ever feel that temptation? He is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. He was just in the Old Testament. He is just today. Romans chapter 2, verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. Colossians chapter 3, verse 25. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that he has done. Church, he is just. He will punish your sin. That's bad news. Are you, are you tracking about how deep in this, in this trench that we all are in our sin? What can you do? What is there to do? The only thing that you can do is to throw yourself upon the mercy of God. And you go, well, how, do, how can I trust that He's merciful? How do I know that He's actually merciful? Case study A, look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ. In your prayer, when you're aware of your sin and you hit your knees and you think about your guilt, the next thing you need to do is to begin to point your eyes to the mercy of God. Look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ. This is what happened at the cross. Romans 3, 23. We all know that verse, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Ooh, that's good news. You know how that verse continues? And we have all been justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ, who God put forward as a substitute for your sins to be received by faith. He says, and he did it this way so that he might be just and the justifier of all of those who have faith in him. So those are theological words. Let's break that down, okay? At the cross of Jesus Christ, God demonstrates his justice. Sin cannot go unpunished. It must be punished. So what does he do in his wisdom and in his love and in his mercy? He goes, I'm going to punish sin. It's just not going to be on those that deserve it. I'm going to give them a substitute. I'm going to pour all the punishment of sin onto the sinless Savior named Jesus Christ. That's what you see at the cross is God's justice. But you also see that He's the justifier. So this is really cheesy, but it's helpful. Okay? What does it mean to be justified? It's just if, if, it's just if I'd never sinned. Just if I'd never sinned. You put your faith in Christ, you have been cleansed to such a degree that when God looks at you, it's just as if I'd never sinned. So when Satan brings you before the throne of God and go, he is undeserving. You can't love him. You can't have mercy on him. You can just go, yeah, yeah, but I'm in Christ. And God goes, oh, he's just as if he's never sinned. That's the beauty of the cross. At the cross, you see justice. In the cross, you see justification. All because he's merciful. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for you. Listen, if, if you're not a believer in Jesus... Like you would say, I, I'm not there yet. I don't know about this. I, he, I, I'm not saved. I'm, I'm interested. I'm curious. Maybe that's why you're here. But you would say, I'm not a believer in Jesus. I need you to understand something. You are not beginning your life from base camp. Base camp's about 17,000 feet up in the Himalayas. You, you don't begin your life there. You actually begin your life in, in the trench of the Kumbu Icefall. Whether you're aware of it or not, sin has been your constant companion since you come into this world. I got a three-year-old. You don't know what I'm talking about? I didn't teach him to act that way. It's just something inside of him. It's this, this kumbu also, this trench of his sin. Y'all, it's, it's part of who you are. And the only hope for you 
The only hope for you to be entrenched to find life and joy and peace is to cast yourself upon the mercy of God at the cross of Christ. But for many of you, and most of in our church, you are believers. You, you want to follow Jesus, you want to trek, you want to summit this mountain of faith, but, but you just slip. You stumble, you fall, you consistently find yourself entrenched. And y'all, newsflash, it's going to happen. Like perfection awaits all of us on the other side of eternity. But as we live this life, like you're going to slip. You're going to fall. You're going to stumble. You're going to sin. The question isn't if. The question is when. What do you do then? Same thing. You just throw yourself upon the mercy of God. So let's look at chapter 10. Let me give you one more point. So the Word of God exposes our trench. Then we throw ourselves upon His mercy. Let's look at what happens in Ezra 10, verse 1. So while Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jalil, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, said, We have broken faith with our God. We've married foreign women from the peoples of the lands, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. They're saying, hey, it's time to get into alignment. Let us do what the Scriptures require us to do. And then they look at Ezra and say, arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Church, this is so beautiful. Psalm 51 says that a contrite and broken spirit God will never despise. The people of Israel got to witness one man's brokenness over sin, and it led to the brokenness of an entire nation. That is beautiful. That's all it takes is just to be grieved over sin so many times. We want to look at our peers, look at our neighbors, and smack them with the Bible and tell them how they're out of alignment, right? It's not what Ezra did. He hit his knees, and they saw his grief, and they realized that's God. God is real. He is grieving. He's convicting of sin. And all of a sudden, this entire community is being impacted by his brokenness. And the masses say, we're guilty. We are aware of our faith, faithlessness. But then they make this interesting comment in verse 2. They, they say, but even now, there's hope. They're saying, we're guilty. We deserve His full wrath. We deserve His punishment. We deserve what is coming to us. But when they look at their present, they go, but it hadn't happened yet. Like, we deserve to die, but I'm still alive. Like, you're still alive, which means there's still hope. Church, if I can just let the Word of God encourage you, right? Some of you are entrenched. You, you know it. You, you've been trenched in sin. You know you're in sin, and you've been in sin for so long, you think it's hopeless, there's no hope for me. I can't break free from this. There's no way I'm getting out of this trench. As long as there is breath in your lungs, there is hope for you. You know why? Because He is merciful. And His steadfast love never ceases. His mercies are new every morning. You can still cast yourself upon His mercy. There's still hope for you. For many of you, that applies to your kids. Maybe your teenage kids, maybe to your adult kids. You know that they are entrenched in sin, and they seem so apathetic over that that there seems to be no feeling. Y'all, there is hope for them. All it takes is one person to throw themselves upon the mercy of God that may impact them. May it be you in the lives of your kids. Y'all, there's still hope. And this assembly, recognizing that there's still hope, comes to Ezra and go, hey, we can renew covenant. Let's, let's try again. 
We hadn't, we hadn't been successful very often, but let's give it a shot. Let's do what we can. Let's bring our life into alignment. But then they look at Ezra and go, <clears throat> but we, we ain't going to be responsible for this. Y'all, can you picture the task here? An entire nation is living in sin. And they go, mm, we recognize this is bad, but like somebody's got to go tell them. Ezra, you're the man. Y'all, this is so encouraging for me. Do you know the level of courage it takes to sit across from somebody and go, you're out of alignment with what God has required of you? This preached to me because everybody wants a pastor like Ezra. At least Christian churches do. Okay. Everybody wants that guy. He, oh, he studies the law. He wants to do it. He wants to teach it. We love that church. They preach the word. They open up the word. We love that pastor. You know what people don't like? Being held accountable to what it says. That's pastoral ministry. Being up here and preaching and teaching is a real privilege and pleasure, but it's sitting down at coffee and going, yeah, you've got changes to make. You start holding people accountable, grow groups, you'll start getting to know each other, sin starts coming out, and you start holding each other accountable to sin. That's not comfortable. Does that feel good to anybody? Husbands in the room, when your wife looks at you and says, you're out of alignment here, does that feel good? It doesn't feel good to me. It doesn't feel good to anybody, and it wasn't going to feel good to the people of Israel. So the, people, the elders go, you're the guy, Ezra. We're behind you. So Ezra says, I need some strength for this. You know what he did? He didn't drink Powerade or grab a cliff bar. He fasted. You read the Scriptures. He hit his knees and began to fast. He weakened his flesh so that his spirit would become powerful in God. He chose to weaken himself so that his dependence would not be in himself. It would have to be in God. That's what fasting does. Come back next week. It's going to be a lot of fun, okay? Fasting. He begins to fast, and he hits his knees, and he rises up, and he issues a proclamation. He says, every man in Israel be in Jerusalem within three days, or we're going to confiscate your property. Oof. And they all come. Look at verse 10. And Ezra the priest stands up and says to them, You have broken faith, and you have married foreign women, and you have increased the guilt of Israel. Now make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do His will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the lands and from the foreign wives. Here, here's the last step, y'all. We let the Word of God expose our trench. We throw ourselves upon His mercy, and then we confess and we repent. That's what he says. Confess. Confess is the verbal admission that I'm out of alignment, that I'm in sin, that I am not living according to God, who God has called me to be. It's verbally acknowledging that. That's what confession is. Now, Ezra had corporately confessed for everybody, right? He had stood in the gap for the entire congregation of Israel and says, we are guilty. Now it's time for each individual to own their sin. That's what Ezra's saying. It's time for you to confess. Church, so many of you are still so entrenched in your sin because you're unwilling to confess. I get it. You're, you're afraid. If I let somebody know what's actually going on in my life, are they going to reject me? Are they going to accept me? Are they going to judge me? So many of you feel that with your spouse, the shame of bringing that stuff into the light, the, sh the embarrassment of bringing that stuff into the light. Y'all, it's a ploy of Satan to keep you in the trench. But as soon as you shine the light on it, there's freedom. Confess those things. And guess what? 1 John 1 verse 9 says, If you confess your sins, He's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. He will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Confess. But then you got to repent. He says, confess, and then, and then go and do His will. Repentance, confession without repentance is just mere words. 
right? How many of you have seen that, that YouTube clip of a sheep that, like, gets stuck in a trench? Have y'all seen this? Go, go home and Google it. It is hysterical. This, this sheep literally gets stuck in this trench. The shepherd grabs his leg, pulls him out. He, like, bounces around pretty excitedly, and then, like, three seconds later, he dives head first right back into the same trench they just pulled him out of. And you hear the shepherd kind of scream, and, like, and he's exasperated over it. Y'all, that's who we are. Like, we sin over and over and over and over again, and some of you are still entrenched in that same old trench because you've confessed, and you've gotten out for three seconds, and then you jump right back into that trench. That's not repentance. We've got to move away from that trench, and some of you, what you need is you need a shepherd. You need somebody that will hear what's going on in your life and go, I'll walk with you through this, and I'll, I'll put a leash on you to keep you out of that trench. We'll put some accountability in place. I will walk with you. I'll be your guy. I will get your back. We will be iron that sharpens iron throughout this duration. That's what the church is called to be. So I just want to encourage you, if you're entrenched and you're in that pattern of confession and sin, confession, sin, confession, sin, confession, sin, and you're ready for someone to step in and walk with you through, come see us. Come talk to us. Come talk to me. Come talk to Coleman. Come talk to one of our elders or deacons. Come talk. We want to walk with you through this. We don't want you entrenched. Do you know why? Because the relationship with God is waiting for you. Sin separates you from God, and I want you to know God. So he says, confess and repent. Verse 12, and I'll close here. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, it is so. We must do as you have said. So over the next several months, every city in Israel had officials and and priests and elders assigned to those cities to ensure that follow-up Y'all, that's some serious accountability. In fact, you want to see some accountability? Keep reading chapter 10. Every name listed there are those that are guilty of this sin. And you think, that's a little harsh. Like, why such high accountability? You know why? Because the identity of the people of God was at stake. And more than that, the identity of their God was at stake. They were called to be a people that reflects the true character of God. But if they're living faithlessly, people around them believe that that God is faithless. Church, the stakes are just as high for you and I. Like you and I are Christians. We're we're the church. We are called to live in righteousness so that we can reflect the righteousness of our God. What that means is we may need to start calling each other out with gentleness, with kindness, with love. After you have hit your knees in prayer and grieving over someone's sin, and sit down with them and go, we need to reflect Christ a little better in these areas. How can we do that together? And don't worry, we're not going to have some roll call and list your name and put it on the website. Okay. Trenches are inevitable. Let the Word of God expose it. Throw yourself upon His mercy. Confess and repent and be on your way walking your faith with God. Let me pray for us and we'll sing a song of response. Father, we're so grateful. So grateful for your mercy. We don't deserve it. We haven't done anything to earn it. And yet you demonstrated your mercy for us that even while we were still sinners, you came and died for us. I pray for each person in this room that if they're entrenched in sin, that you would give them hope. That they would take their eyes off of their sin, stop groveling and looking at the depth of their sin, and help them to put their eyes on the cross of Jesus Christ because it's when we see your mercy at the cross, we're filled with hope. Lord, I pray for the courage that many may need for confession. I pray that you would help lead them into that so that freedom would happen, so they can be well on their way of summiting this incredible pinnacle, this incredible peak of faith and relationship with you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.